Good morning once again, uh, Luke Miedema. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Beautiful sunny morning in the valley. Uh, last week, we started a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark is the second book in the New Testament, but it's actually the earliest written account of Jesus' life. And last week, in the opening verses of this book, what we heard was the announcement of Jesus' arrival. Okay, John the Baptist, the wild man in the desert, wearing camel hair shirts, which is just as weird then as it is now, eating bugs. He goes out and he preaches that the one who is greater than him will soon arrive, and that I will baptize you with water, but this one who comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was his announcement. And so now this week, we're, get, we're actually going to see the arrival of Jesus. This is Jesus' first action in the book of Mark. This is his opening statement. Now, as we know, lawyers, when they stand up in court and give their opening statement, I got put on jury duty for two weeks in Chicago a couple summers back. There's, I got a whole collection of stories and sermon illustrations about that. We won't go there this morning. But um, lawyers, when they stand up to do their opening statement, what they're doing is they're setting the, the frame, right? They're setting the narrative and the themes that they're going to unpack in the trial in the coming weeks. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here. He is giving us two stories, two accounts at the beginning of Jesus' life that set the trajectory for his whole life and ministry. These are signposts. These are hints of where the whole story of Jesus' life is going. But actually, the Gospel of Mark is less like a lawyer's argument. He's not Paul. It's not like the Romans, kind of logical, analytical thing. This, in some ways, is a little bit more like a symphony, okay? So maybe the better analogy would be that before Mark takes us through these movements of Jesus' life, he establishes the themes that we're going to hear and experience right at the beginning. The two events we'll see this morning, Jesus' baptism and his temptation, they're not just the salad before you get to the real meal. These are the theological melodies that will get picked up again and again in his life, in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection. These are the signposts that are telling us where he's going on his mission. So now that I've mixed like 20 metaphors at the beginning of this sermon, let's take a look at this passage. Uh, follow along as I read Mark 1. We're just going to look at verses 9 through 15. Passage is up on the screen behind me. You can follow along. This is Mark 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and with you I'm well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we unpack this, as we hear you and Jesus, as we witness the um, opening statements of your life and ministry, I pray that you would impress on us what your mission was really about, what, what you are really about. I pray that we leave here this morning um, reminded or maybe for the first time being able to see what it really is that you came to do. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the way I want to unpack this this morning is by looking at uh, three things, the places that Jesus goes, the person that Jesus is, and then finally the promise 
that Jesus makes. So first, the places Jesus goes. In verse 8, which is uh, the verse directly before where we started reading in Mark this morning, John the Baptist announces that the one who's mightier than him will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this is what we looked at last week in some details. And just, uh, this is like an aside, FYI, this new website that I've been like, staring at my computer at. Um, we got all our, our sermons up on there. So if you miss a week or you want to go back and hear something or you want to send something to your grandma, those are all on the website and you can forward that pretty easily. It's pretty easy. Okay, so verse 8, John tells us that Jesus is going to show up and baptize. Now in verse 9, we meet Jesus for the first time in this book. And what does he do? As his very first act, Jesus arrives on the scene And he does the exact opposite of what John predicted he was going to do. Okay, Jesus doesn't show up to baptize anybody. He shows up to get baptized. Now, this is weird, okay? This is surprising. And honestly, this is so Jesus, all right? This is uh, something I've noticed about Jesus over the years as I've gone back through and reread the Gospels. And every time I encounter his teachings and his behavior and the company he keeps— He's a weird guy, okay? I mean, like, I hope I can say that about Jesus as a pastor up here, but, like, Jesus is strange and surprising, and he's regularly turning upside down the expectations that we have for him. Right when you think you have Jesus nailed down, he goes and he does something like the exact opposite of what he was said he was going to do, okay? So if you're here this morning and you're curious about Christianity— Maybe you're interested in investigating Jesus some more. Let me just say that some of your assumptions about Jesus are off in some ways. He's nuanced, he's fascinating, he's never boring. Uh, And I find this really encouraging and exciting because no matter how many times I go back to reread it, he's regularly surprising me. So I'd encourage you, if uh, you're interested in exploring Christianity more, take some time and maybe read through the Gospel of Mark. It takes about two hours, if you're a very slow reader, to get through the whole book. Okay, So you could grab a nice cup of coffee, do it in one sitting, and I bet Jesus will surprise you at some point along the journey. On the other hand, this is also kind of a warning to those of us who have been longtime Christians. Your assumptions about Jesus are almost certainly wrong in some ways, too. Okay, So as we go through this gospel together, as we track the life and the story and the ministry of Jesus' life in the book of Mark, I would just ask that you and me would be willing to be sort of re-surprised by Jesus, willing to be re-challenged, recalled, re-committed to who he is. He's a fascinating guy, and we will be surprised as we unpack this book together. Because this is not the opening statement or the theological melody that we would expect to kick off Jesus' public ministry. Why does he start in such a confusing, indirect way? I mean, why does Jesus need to get baptized anyway? This was actually John the Baptist's question, and he was the one doing the baptizing. So in Matthew, when we read about this same account, when Jesus arrives to be baptized, it says John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then this great little verse, John consented. So John's sort of like, I have no idea what we're doing here. I don't know why you're telling me to do this, but you the man, I'll listen to what you say. I'm in. I'll baptize you. If you were here last week, you remember we talked some about what baptism means. 
It is a declaration of need. It's an act of repentance, an act of faith. Baptism is not something that saves you, but it's a public acknowledgement that you need saving. Okay? In baptism, you're saying, I'm sinful, I'm impure, I'm unclean, I need to be washed, forgiven, and made whole. In other words, the waters of baptism are where sinners who know they're sinners go. If you know that you need help, you go to the waters of baptism. So why on earth does Jesus go to the waters of baptism? Zero of those things apply to him. He is God himself. He's the perfect man. He is uh, the one who has never sinned. The only person in history who does not need to step into the waters of baptism goes and steps into the waters of baptism as the first thing he does in his life and ministry. This is weird, and this is surprising, but this is exactly the mission that Jesus came to do on earth. Jesus came to stand where sinners stood, right? Jesus came to be with the needy. He came to be with the broken, the repentant, those of us who are trying to be faithful but are not being very faithful. Jesus came to be with us and to stand where we stand. Jesus came to be with the brokenhearted, those who are beat up, by this world. He came to be with those who feel and experience the weight of the shame and their guilt, those who know they don't have it all together and really don't know what to do about it. See, this is great news for you if you know that you're in need this morning, right? If you know that you don't quite have it all together, or if it's even worse than that, this first instance of Jesus, this first act of Jesus, this is a a gift for you. He came to stand where you stand if you're in need. This is the great gift of Christianity. This is the great surprise about Jesus. The qualifications for getting in are actually the things that you would never put on your resume, right? I mean, on our resume, when we're trying to like present ourselves to other people, we populate it with uh, line items that are successes and wins and sort of action words, you know, like creative or what, like the things that like make us look awesome and good. They're real. We're not lying, but like that's how we populate our resume. What qualifies you for Christianity is the anti-resume. It's the list of your failures. It's the list of your sins. It's the list of the times where you should have been active and weren't. The ways you failed to live as God has called you to live. These are the things that qualify you for Jesus's kingdom. And this is the exact opposite of every single other religious system, every other moral improvement plan on the market. Obedience and good living is not the entry point for Christianity. It is the the goal. It's the final result. It's not nothing. But it's not how Christianity starts for somebody. The entry point is actually our failure. Okay, The entry point is our sin. Jesus came to stand where sinners stand to be with us exactly in the moments we're at our worst. That's where Jesus meets you. That's where Jesus meets me. So one maybe application for us from Jesus's opening statements this morning is don't be afraid to let Jesus go there with you, okay? I mean, don't be afraid to sort of throw those windows and those doors of your heart open to the places that are the most uh, shameful, the most embarrassing the most hidden in your life, that's where Jesus comes to meet people. That's where he connects with people. 
is not in our strengths, but in our weakness. Jesus brings healing everywhere he goes, but you got to let him go there for him to bring the healing, okay? Repentance, confession, these practices of the Christian life, they're not just duties to make us sort of feel guilty. They're the lifeblood of receiving God's healing grace. Let him go there, because that's the whole reason he came to this world. The first place Jesus went is with sinners, to stand where they stand. And the second place is just as surprising as the first. Jesus steps into the waters where sinners go, and then he steps into the wilderness that sinners made. Verse 12, we read, The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. It's kind of interesting language. The Spirit drives him somewhere. It's almost like he didn't want to go. I don't know. And he was, he did, but he didn't. Uh, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So before launching his public ministry, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for this intense time of physical and spiritual temptation. He goes hungry for 40 days. He's directly tempted by Satan, this great enemy of God. He was tempted to take the easy path to fame. Uh, He was tempted to take the path of least resistance, the path of comfort. He was tempted to take the path that God did not lay out for him. But in response to all these temptations, Jesus remains faithful. He, He fights Satan with scripture, right? He says, not your word, but God's word is what I'm going to listen to. And then he emerges victorious, but weak, right? The angels are ministering to him. Now, a couple things here. Okay, first, Satan. Let's talk about Satan. Do you think you're going to get up on a sunny Sunday morning in the mountains and come to church and talk about Satan? Well, here we are. Uh, Since it came up in the Bible, this is how Grace Church is going to roll. If something comes up in the Bible, we assume it was put there for our good. And even if it's kind of weird or awkward or uncomfortable, we're going to address it because we trust that what Jesus put here is good for us. Okay? So, on this sunny Sunday morning, let's spend a few minutes talking about Satan. Uh, So, angels are another race of spiritual beings that Jesus created uh, besides humanity. And Satan and the other demons that are mentioned in the Bible uh, are those in this spiritual race who have rebelled against God. They're rebel angels working against the purposes of God in the world, in the spiritual realm. Now, depending on your background here, you're going to sort of respond to this Satan-demon talk in maybe one of a couple ways, okay? So uh, some of us, and I'm going to put myself in this category, some of us are going to underemphasize the sort of spiritual world, all right? It's kind of strange, right? It's not the kind of thing I want to get caught talking about at a cocktail party, let's be honest. It, it might not be the kind of thing I want my friends to know I take really seriously or even consider a possibility, right? It's not modern It's not progressive. It's not like intellectually credible in today's world. So some of us underemphasize the spiritual realm that the Bible talks about. Some of us, though, might have a tendency to overemphasize it. And what I mean here is that we live with an inordinate amount of attention to Satan or even fear of the unknown of the spiritual world that we can't directly see or experience. But the Gospel of Mark and the whole Bible really confronts both of these reactions. The Bible takes Satan really seriously. Uh, He's presented as an active enemy of God in his church. Uh, He's a a tempter. He's a liar. We should acknowledge him. 
uh, and actively resist him through prayer and community and kind of spiritual, faithful spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. But the Bible also says that we should not be over afraid of him either. Because the Bible says that while he is powerful and he's the enemy of God and he's deeply committed to your harm, if you're at all interested in Jesus, Satan is already a defeated enemy, right? I mean, King Jesus, in his life and ministry and death and resurrection, has already defeated your greatest enemy. So if you're with King Jesus, you're good. Nothing can touch you, okay? Yes, there's respect. Yes, there's disciplines. But there shouldn't be fear. And there shouldn't be um, like kind of this uh, unsettling uncertainty. We know how this story ends. God created Satan, um, and nothing can, and he, and everything, including Satan, is under Jesus's authority. And honestly, that's probably one of the most shocking things about this whole scene at the beginning of Mark. I mean, Jesus created Satan, right? And then here we are. At the beginning of his public life, the inauguration of his ministry, and one of the signposts that's going to set the trajectory for his entire mission is that Jesus' own creation is turning against him, and he just sort of takes it, right? Jesus could swat Satan away like a fly. I mean, I don't want to be, like, too gross or weird, but um, he, could, he could flick Satan away like a booger. I mean, like, Satan is just, he is nothing, compared to Jesus. Jesus made him, and Satan has nothing on Jesus, and yet um, he endures this brutal and spiritual attack for 40 days from a creature that he made in the first place. Why does he do this? Because the first time Satan spiritually attacked humanity, it was in a beautiful garden that was full of life and order, and it was where everything worked, and uh, In that instance, when humanity was assaulted by this enemy of God, we failed, okay? Adam and Eve gave in to Satan's temptations. They believed his word over God's word, and the world broke as a result. And so now, Jesus has come back into the world to succeed exactly where we failed. But instead of entering a world as it was made to be, Jesus enters the world as we made it after that fall right? It's interesting. Mark goes out of his way to mention the wild animals. He's the only gospel writer who does that. They're prowling around in the wilderness during Jesus's temptation. Um, It's these little details in Mark that I think kind of give it the color and the personality. I think what he's doing is he's making a direct contrast between the wild animals prowling around in the wilderness, this broken world that we made, and the animals in the garden that were under the care and the authority of um, Adam and Eve, right? In that garden, back in Genesis 1 and 2, animals weren't wild or dangerous, but lived under the loving authority of humanity. Adam named them. There was harmony there. It was almost like there was a relationship there. There was care. There was safety. It wasn't unordered. It wasn't wild. It wasn't dangerous. But when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, he enters the world as we made it, after we gave in to that enemy because of our sin. So he enters a wilderness and not a garden filled with wild and dangerous animals, not tame ones. Jesus came to succeed exactly where we failed. He came to live perfectly where we live sinfully. He came to resist temptation where we give in to it. 
But to do this, he's got to experience the broken world that we created and, and everything that it can throw at him, including Satan, including hunger, including fear, including loneliness, including death itself. And he does all of this, not only so that he can redeem our personal relationship with God, but so he can redeem the whole world back, right? Jesus came to turn the wilderness that we made back into the garden of life that God made. So, the first two places Jesus goes are into the waters of baptism where sinners stand, to be with them, to become like them, to become one of them, and then into the wilderness that sinful humanity made, to experience its pain and its hardship, be tempted by it, to suffer in it, and then to finally redeem it. Have you guys seen that new Bud Light commercial? Um, it's, uh, sorry, this is a weird sermon. I've now mentioned boogers and Bud Light. I apologize to everybody. Um, this is just sort of how my mind works sometimes. So a guy, it's about the pit of misery. A guy escapes from this medieval dungeon, um, and he, just to get a case of Bud Light, and then he goes right back to the same dungeon. And uh, as he locks himself back in in the prison, he throws the keys down the hallway back to the guards. And one of his fellow prison mates says, wait a second, you escaped the pit of misery and you came back? And the guy looks at him and says, yeah, with Bud Light. And then his friend says, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, Because obviously he voluntarily goes back into the pit of misery and he's stuck there again, just like everybody else, right? What we've seen so far is that the places Jesus voluntarily goes are the pits, aren't they? I mean, he goes into the pits, and he experiences the misery of this world. He joins sinners in their shame. He endures the worst of our world. But this is only good news for anybody if Jesus has something to offer once he gets there. I mean, if Jesus is simply a good guy joining us in the pits, that would be sweet, and that would be thoughtful, And that would be kind of noble, but it would also be the dumbest thing we've ever heard, unless he comes into the pits with us and actually has something to offer besides Bud Light to bring us out, right? If Jesus is not just a good guy, but is the good and powerful God, the king of creation, well then this is not the dumbest thing we've ever heard. This is the greatest thing that we've ever heard. See, the places Jesus is willing to go on our behalf, they're only transformative, they're only life-changing because of the person that Jesus is. So much, so much more briefly than our first point, don't get worried. Um, who is Jesus? Remember, this in many ways is the whole point of the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark invented a new genre of literature called a gospel to tell us a story about Jesus, but more than that, to make us respond to Jesus. You aren't supposed to be able to read this like a normal biography of a genius where you just kind of take away some interesting facts and get on about your day job. This was written so that we're forced to answer the question, who is Jesus? And in this passage, God himself answers that question for us from heaven. As Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism, three incredible things happen at once. The heavens are torn open. We're shown that Jesus alone has unique and privileged access to heaven, to the place where God is. He has access in a way that we do not. He has a doorway. He has a pathway to God himself. And then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. 
what we're shown here is that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the chosen king of God's people. In the same way that you anoint the kings in the Old Testament and pour oil over their heads, the the Holy Spirit is poured down on Jesus' head. He's the chosen one, our Savior. And then God speaks audibly from heaven for everyone around to hear. Imagine being there. Heavens are torn open, and you hear a voice coming from the clouds, and it says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. God the Father actually speaks from heaven one other time in the Gospel of Mark at this strange event called the Transfiguration. We'll get to it in Mark 9. And you know what God says on that occasion as well? Mark 9, verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's only two recorded occasions of of God audibly speaking from heaven for humans to hear on earth. And each time, he says the exact same thing. This, Jesus, this is my beloved son. I mean, this is the one fact that God wants you to know about Jesus. He said it twice, and he only spoke twice from heaven. This is my beloved son. One theologian I read this week said, if you know Jesus is the beloved son of God, you know the single most important fact in the entire world. The one thing that, Jesus, or that God said twice from heaven. And so the question is, do you know that about Jesus? Do you know the most important fact in the entire world? That Jesus is God's beloved son. He's the most loved, the most revered, the most honored, the most glorified, the most delighted in person who has ever lived. Knowing that fact will actually change your life. Let's just pause a moment and and sort of appreciate the depth of the humility that Jesus was willing to go through as he begins his public ministry. I mean, the Prince of Heaven, okay? The, The truly perfect one, who gives up all, he gives up all the comforts and the riches of his throne room to come and stand where sinners stand, to to become like the rebels and like the traitors that populate our world. He came to become like us. And then the king of heaven, the one who made everything that you see, these mountains, creatures that populate this planet, um, he gives up his rights to power, to be subjugated to temptation and suffering and pain by the very creatures he made, by us. And then the most loved one who ever lived gives up that love to be rejected, to be abandoned, eventually to be killed. He did it voluntarily. He did it willingly. He did it with a laser-sharp focus. He did it for a reason. See, he didn't just go into the pits to suffer alongside us. He came into the pits to suffer for us. Jesus is the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. This is the most important fact in the world. And he came not only to stand where we stand, but actually to allow us to stand where he stands. Okay, the person Jesus, um, the person that Jesus is, the beloved son of God, makes the promises that Jesus offers us possible. What do I mean? What are the promises that Jesus offers his people? Well, Jesus wraps up his opening statement with these words in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. In these opening events of Jesus' life, we see the two great promises of the gospel for all who trust and follow him. First, Jesus stands in our place. And then second, 
he lets us stand in his place. Okay? He, he began his earthly life standing in the waters of baptism, surrounded by sinners like us, to be with us. He ended his life hanging on a cross, bearing the sins of the world. He actually became sin for us. And after he takes the punishment we deserve for the sins he didn't commit, he gives us the access to heaven that he deserves that we could never achieve. Let me just read that one again. That's a good sentence. I wrote that down earlier. After he takes the punishment we deserve for the sins he didn't commit, he gives us the access to heaven he deserves that we could never achieve. That's why God's voice from heaven, repeated twice in the book of Mark, is the most important fact in the world. When God the Father looks at anyone who has put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he actually says the very same thing about you that he says about Jesus. You are, in Jesus, my beloved son. You are, in Jesus, my beloved daughter. You are my beloved children who I'm well pleased. Or as Paul puts it later in the New Testament, for our sake... God made Jesus to be sin. He knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stood in our place so that we could stand in his. Our failures are his failures, but then his victories become our victories. These are the twin themes of the gospel. Okay, the, the theological melodies that resonate through the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and even his current reign now. that, That he stands in your place so that you can stand in his place. That's the gospel, and Jesus is asking you to believe in it. Let's pray that these are also the themes of the song that resonate in our own hearts and in our own church. Heavenly Father, you have spoken from heaven, and you've told us how beloved your son is, how much delight that you take in him. We pray this morning that you would help our own wandering hearts take greater delight in Jesus than we ever have before. Thanks for sending your one and only Son to live and die on our behalf. Thanks for the substitution of Jesus in our place, entirely by grace. Help us know you, Jesus. Help us trust you more. Help the miracle of your humility, your voluntary entrance into our world, and the grandness of your love sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. Jesus, we love you. Amen.